Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It'll be a great show today. I can hardly wait. Pastor Rich McCorris is going to come on the program in just a minute. He's going to talk about Romans 12. I love Romans 12. And then Kim Weir is going to talk on the art of friendship. You know, that subject has come up many times in the last couple of months. I think we live in more of a disconnected time. Everyone's looking at their phones, not talking to each other and There's more people feeling lonely than ever before. So we're going to talk about friendship with her. And then David Wheaton's going to be on in hour two. And then uh, David Murray is going to be joining the program. And it's going to be a great show. So let's get things started. Take 60 seconds and bring on Pastor Rich. We live in a connected world, but no advancement in technology can offer real peace, hope, or encouragement. You can use technology to stay connected to the true source of life, God, when you download the free Faith Radio Network app. The app allows you to listen to previously aired programs, read articles, and listen to the live stream. Search for Faith Radio Network in your app store to download the free Faith Radio Network app today. What is beautiful about the Lord God is the gracious way He will deal with you. Rather than shaming you with hands on hips... You will see the arms of the Father wide open, waiting for His Son to come over the horizon. Wherever you are, it's a place in your radio dial for hope. Faith Radio. Pastor Rich McCurris is my guest. He's the senior pastor at King of Glory Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He uh, has written a book called Real Life, How to Live with Contentment, Confidence, and Joy. Something we should think about every day when we get on our feet and start our day. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Oh, it's a delight to have you back. I loved your book. I thought you uh, gave us a lot of practical counsel and wisdom in the book and it's always a good reminder that we need to uh, live with confidence um, and contentment and joy. So thank you for the Holy Spirit leading you to write that book. I appreciate it. All of us have got a variety of circumstances that we're in, and so sometimes we just need a friendly reminder to look beyond our circumstances for our joy, contentment, and confidence. Yeah. Why is that so stinking hard to do sometimes, Rich? (laughs) Well, the noise is pretty loud around us most of the time, and I think we're trained that it's all about the physical realm, when in reality there is something more beyond what we can see, touch, and feel. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, God provides uh, the best news for us, that He's with us, and He'll walk through every episode in our lives with us, and we should have a great sense of uh, joy and gratitude, knowing that He is alongside us. Yep, exactly right. Yeah. So I want to chat a little bit today about um, the sermon series that you're doing at your church on the book of Romans, which 
It's such a powerful book. It's one of my all-time favorites. And I know the focus of your sermon series is kind of teaching people and reminding them how to live in the midst of division. Yeah, we're going to be kicking off in Romans chapter 12 and spending seven weeks looking at uh, how Paul encourages us and kind of what our marching orders are for life and reflecting upon uh, how do we implement implement that when we're living in a society that's very polarized right now and really a time in our lives when uh, there's just a lot of division around us. So let's let's jump into some of the portions of Romans that we can look at and we can go, oh boy, here's the instruction we're getting. Yeah, in Romans chapter 12, I, the, way, the reason I chose that chapter is it kind of is a bunch of encouragements where the Apostle Paul is kind of laying out one thing after another. And I think so often in our society, we can get stuck in, well, I'm going to do what somebody else does to me, or I'm going to do what feels right. Mm-hmm. When, when, in, when in reality, we've got some encouragement here of saying, hey, it's not about the circumstances around you, but it's about what, in light of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for you, offer your lives as an act of worship. And so what does that look like to offer our lives as an act of worship? All right, I'm still at full attention. So just uh, looking at each little thing, you know, I think a big thing right now in our society is there's some basic encouragements like Romans 12, where it says, seek to show hospitality. Ooh. You know, this isn't, uh, we have to remember that the book of Romans was written also in a very hostile culture. Uh, you know, everything was not well for the Christians living underneath the power of the Roman Empire. And yet Paul is encouraging them to still extend hospitality, in other words, to help a stranger, help an enemy become a brother or sister in Christ, really uh, encouraging us today to say, hey, how are we doing in our hospitality in regards to opening our lives to those around us? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Rich, because I think of that we become slightly more isolated and we get uh, less connected to people, and then all of a sudden we're doing less hospitality. Or maybe I should just speak for myself. I think you are echoing a lot of what's going on around us. You know, one of the things I've learned uh, in the role that I serve is that most people don't open their homes to one another any any longer. You know, Sunday meals are becoming less common with friends and extended family. And we have bigger homes, but we spend less time opening those homes to people around us. And so I think we're called to live out this uh, hospitality. You know, it's also some of the demands on time have changed over the decades in terms of kids' activities and the different places they have to be driven and the events and the activities in their lives. And to some credit to the parents, they do end up at the end of the day or end of the week pretty exhausted. Yes. We are a global society now. Everything is on the everything is on the go, and so we've got to find ways to sometimes change the pace, or sometimes incorporate something into the pace of our lives that includes others. Mm-hmm. Now, Rich, when you were growing up, um, were your parents? Did they have that gift of hospitality? Did you regularly have people into your home and meals and and um, times of social activity? It was pretty much ingrained into us from a pretty young age that our table was always open to others. Okay. So oftentimes, oftentimes even at Christmas or Thanksgiving, we would have non-family members uh, join us uh, for a meal. Uh, we'd have friends over in our home quite often. And so it was kind of ingrained in our DNA. Yeah. So you come from that place and you, you continue to do it. Um, what about some tips you could give the rest of us who maybe 
aren't as good at hospitality? Oh, great question. I think first and foremost is, I, this might sound kind of weird, but allowing yourself to experience hospitality from someone else oh. will, really, will really train you then on how to be hospitable for someone else. Mm-hmm. One of the examples I use is that some of us are really bad at being cared for. That can make us also a really bad caregiver. But when we've received really good care, we know how then to give good care to others. And so part of it is, is you know, look at the examples around you of people that you enjoy being around. Why do you enjoy being around to them and trying to learn from those examples? Mm-hmm. Don't you find yourself, though, with preparing for Sunday uh, sermon and you got three young kids and uh, a busy week? that it, it is something you have to be very intentional about. You can't just at the last minute say, wonder if we should invite the Joneses over for dinner. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very much intentional. The other thing that we have tried to do in our family, because we are getting ready for my unique role of preaching on Sunday, you know, we, we got to be intentional on Saturday of saying, hey, we're going to take a couple hours and get cleaned up so we can invite some people over for brunch or lunch after, after church. But the other thing that we've tried to do is not fuss about that, uh-huh. That we can actually actually intentionally set an example for the people that are coming over. So little little do people know. Sometimes when they come over intentionally, we didn't clean under the couch. Yeah, because we want to lead by example of saying, "Hey, you know what? Don't, you can have people over without having to get all the fine china out." <laughs> yeah, and just the fact that they see you living in your home as you live in your home is probably another good reminder that it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. One of the things we love to do is when we're having brunch on a Sunday, we'll have people over. I mean, the brunch isn't ready when people get there because mm-hmm. we've been at church with everybody. So we all just show up and I say, hey, you start cracking eggs. Hey, you start nice. mixing the pancake mix. Nice. You know, so try, try to make it a family affair with everybody that comes. Yeah, I remember when I, when I sold uh, my house, the realtor more or less said to me, you have to make your house look like you don't live in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And there's that reminder that uh, let's just not worry about stuff or over-worry, because if if you do, you're never going to—you're going to be less intentional. You're going to be less uh, spontaneous. If you're waiting for the perfect opportunity, the opportunity will never come. That is so true. All right, uh, Rich, let's move on with um, more on Chapter 12 of the Book of Ro- uh, Romans. I think, you know, as we look on here in verses 14 through 21 in Romans Chapter 12, it's really where we get to some of the heart of the matter— that's most difficult for us. The Apostle Paul encourages us with words like, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And I think in our current culture of division, our followers of Christ are going to rise up and kind of step above the fray and say, hey, there are individuals, there are groups that are persecuting us, but we are not going to return what's been given. We're going to take the high road, and what we're going to do is we're going to bless them rather than curse them. And this is extremely, extremely difficult, but I think this is getting to the heart of Jesus Christ, how he responded to persecution and how we live that out in our lives, especially in the midst of a polarized society. And Rich, isn't it safe to say that sometimes walking the Christian faith is just not that easy? Exactly. It is not a pathway that uh, is just comes, comes natural at all. Actually, it's the exact opposite of what comes natural, of why we have to live in the power of the Spirit to live out the Christian life. Yeah, because if we're living in this divided, polarized world that we are living in, if we don't rise above the fray and love the people who are difficult and challenging in our lives, 
we're really not paying attention and following what God commands. Exactly. Yeah. And I think another another big piece of this is what example or what culture are we creating for our children? We talk a lot about teaching our kids in kindergarten, hey, if, if Johnny hits you, you know, don't hit Johnny back. Mm-hmm. Are we Are we modeling that with how we're interacting on Twitter, with how we're interacting on Facebook, with how we're talking about those who have different political views than us? Are we modeling that for our children? Or are we creating an environment that says, hey, if they said that about you, it's okay for you to say that about them. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to be very mindful of what kind of culture we're creating for our children. All right, Rich, this is kind of a dangerous question, but as you look out over the landscape of your friends and people in your community, how are we doing regarding that? Are we are we being loving and caring and kind on Twitter and Facebook and or do Christians appear to be much like the world that we're trying to counter? Mm, that's a difficult one, which any answer I give may appear judgmental. I think <laughs> from from my my perspective and speaking even I know for myself is this is the area I think where we're struggling the most right now because the emotions are very high. And I think we are really struggling here to bless those who persecute us. I'm seeing a lot of Christian leaders. I'm seeing um, a lot of people that are in the that are in the day-to-day, they're falling into the trap of um, basically following the patterns of the world rather than being renewed in our minds and uh, blessing rather than cursing. Mm-hmm. Rich Mercouris is my guest. He's the uh, senior pastor of King of Glory Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back. show. Awfully glad to have Pastor Rich McCorse as my guest. He is the senior pastor at King of Glory, which is in Sioux Falls. And we are chatting today about uh, how to love and try to have unity in, in the midst of all the division that we have going on in life, in our world, in our neighborhoods. And we're coming to it out of Romans chapter 12. And it uh, starts in Verse 9, with love in action, you know what, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. You know, we, we have some orders. God wants us to put our love into action. Exactly right. One of the phrases I like to use and encourage people with is, no matter the environment around us, our marching orders do not change. And I think that's what we see here in Romans chapter 12, is the Apostle Paul's laying out a variety of encouragements. These encouragements do not shift with the wind. They do not shift with the culture. We've got to remain faithful to these encouragements, these marching orders that God has given to us. And so if living in the midst of division, we've got to remain true to how God has designed us and how God has redeemed us to live. Mm-hmm. Rich, when I look at verse 9 in chapter 12 of Romans, where it says, love must be sincere and hate what is evil. How do we hate what is evil without feeling or being hateful towards those who, as we see it, are doing evil? That is a fabulous question because we've bought in a lie in our culture that says if I disagree with a position or if I disagree with the behavior of a person, I hate that person. Mm-hmm. When, when in reality, we all know this to be true of ourselves. There's, there's things about ourselves that all of us do not like, <laughs> but yet we do not hate ourselves. And so we've got to return back to a, a truth that says, you know, we can um, be disappointed. 
we can actually um, be opposed to a specific behavior or a specific um, position that somebody has, but that doesn't mean we hate or, or despise that person. It's really a fine line to walk, and I think it really comes down to how are we maintaining relationship even in the midst of the disagreement. Mm-hmm. In verse 16, Richard talks about live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So there's another indicator. How connected are we with people that live below us in terms of um, socioeconomic levels, um, status levels, in terms of, you know, your your job and the community that you're trying to be a part of? Uh, it's, it's just kind of a good litmus test, isn't it? Absolutely. This is what it means to follow Christ. Our, ma- our master himself did not show up in a village and go to the most powerful uh, house in the village, but rather our master went and visited anyone and everyone, and oftentimes was found to be associating with those whose society would say they are the lowliest. And so it's our responsibility, but more than that, it's really our opportunity to engage with people uh, of all um, economic statuses, uh, engage with people of all statuses, because there's really value in seeing everyone and uh, an opportunity really to learn from everyone as well. Rich, it's interesting how Jesus would always gravitate to the people on the margins, wouldn't he? Yes. I mean, the people who are on the in and the people who are on the out, you'd always find him with the people on the out. Yeah, there's a lesson there in a variety of ways for us. It it appears as though Christ found more uh, place to be, welcoming place even, than those who are on the in. Sometimes uh, those of us are those who are on the in and uh, can gain a little bit of pride. And sometimes that pride can make it difficult to be around. And so I think sometimes Jesus uh, found those crowds that didn't have that pride uh, engage in those places. When I think of verse 21 where it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sometimes there's not going to be the tangible evidence that your efforts did in fact prove that you were able to overcome evil with good. You just have to go love and do good, and and, uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, like it says in the previous verse. But you won't always know what the results are. Does that sound fair? Yeah, we are not not responsible for the response of those that we are loving. We are responsible for what, what we seek to initiate and how we respond. And so it can be difficult at times because we might be seeing like, well, I'm keeping all of these good works on those who are persecuting me. Um, but yet our our sense of satisfaction shouldn't come from uh, the good works or from the response of those, but rather from our faithfulness, knowing that we're living within the calling that God has given to us. Mm-hmm. Rich, in your book, uh, Real Life, How to Live with Contentment, Confidence, and Joy, we have a tendency, naturally, to want to build our identity around things that aren't God. I mean, that's just the default position. I want to have a good job. I want to be well-liked. I want, you know, my family to be wonderful and perfect. And you have all these desires in terms of trying to build your identity. And we need to know always that our identity is first and foremost in Christ. Exactly right. The moment that we start to stray from that, everything else begins to crumble. Our behavior flows from our identity. And so if we don't begin by understanding who we are and whose we are, uh, behavior is just going to flow 
from that that is not healthy for those who are around us or for ourselves. And you can also think that there are so many good things. It's great to have a great family. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, But if it becomes like what Augustine says is this disordered love where you start to place it in higher importance than you have God, it can crumble quickly as well in that position, can it? Yeah, I think I appreciate that quote that you just shared. I think a modern-day quote from that is Pastor Tim Keller, who talks a lot about, you know, we've got so many good gifts, and why can't we enjoy these good gifts? It's because for many of us, these good gifts have become God rather than good gifts. Mm -hmm. And so the moment that, you know, I I enjoy sports, for example. Uh, Sports can become a God, though. And so the moment it becomes a God, it's kind of like, why is it not life-giving anymore? Well, you're, you're trying to get something from it that it can't deliver. And so we need to enjoy the good gifts for what they are, gifts and temporary rather than God. Yeah, everything we have comes from God, including our ability to enjoy the things that he gives us. Yes. Deuteronomy speaks a lot about that, of where did you get your ability to do this or to do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, God gave us the ability to do that. And then you think, well, I, I know people who are pretty wealthy who are pretty miserable. And, of course, my default yeah. thought is, how can you be miserable? you got money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Uh, you know, I think something we lose sight of is uh, everybody, no matter what your economic status is, has struggled with grief, anxiety, uh, lust. All of those, those things are not economically dependent, but they are common across the human spectrum. And so uh, just having more money doesn't necessarily remove those remove those things. Sometimes it can actually make it worse because they look to that to solve some of those issues that we're still going to have. As we get ready to close our time together, Rich, um, joy, contentment, confidence. What's a practical step we can take today to move us in that direction? Great question. I think the number one thing I I try to encourage people on is to rememberize one one scripture, something like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So just memorize that promise. And I, I try to speak something like that to myself every morning. Before I start listening to my own heart, I try to preach to my heart and remind my heart, hey, today rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in the circumstances or look around, but first find my joy in the Lord. So my encouragement would be memorize that truth, speak that truth to yourself right away in the morning and throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Is that a routine of yours? It's a routine of mine. I try to speak to myself before I get into the shower, because when I get in the shower, I start thinking and listening to myself. So I try to build that habit up. Well, good. I, I thought you were going to say you get in the shower and start singing. <laughs> well, my, uh, we can't go there. I'm not even allowed to sing at church. That's how bad <laughs> of a singer I am. <laughs> but I appreciate uh, your reminding all of us how joy and contentment and confidence in life comes from the Lord. And that's where we go for our, all of our resources and our joy. And you're um, really nice to spend time with us today. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. Yeah, thank you. Pastor Rich McCorris has been my guest. He's the senior pastor at King of Glory Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So if you live in that area and you're looking for a church, I pretty much uh, think that you're going to want to head over there. Meet some of the fine people at King of Glory Church. And his book is called uh, Real Life, How to Live with Contentment, Confidence, and Joy. We're on the road. All right, we all know that we were made for meaningful relationships, and uh, 
My guest, Kim Weir, has written a book on the art of friendship, creating and keeping relationships that matter. Interesting that this topic has come up more than once in the last uh, several months, and to mixed reviews, not the book. The book has gotten great reviews, but the, the reviews on friendship has been mixed, and I can't wait to talk to Kim about it. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Bill. Glad uh, glad to chat. You're right. There's uh, if there's any time to talk about friendship, this is probably a great opportunity where we are right now with so much divisiveness. Yeah, not only that, Kim, but uh, when we talk about friendship on the show, we get a fair amount of response from listeners that go, boy, I wish I had friends. Um, So I assume you've got lots of friends because you wrote a book about it. You know, I am the quintessential girl who needed friends. (laughs) You know, so loneliness is epidemic, and it's that best kept secret. We don't want. We're embarrassed to tell people we're lonely. And while the the book that you mentioned is kind of marketed geared toward women, there's not a thing that I write about that I haven't pondered and studied that isn't applicable to man, woman, or child. Um, And the thing that we have in common is that we are dying of loneliness, Mm -hmm. and it's. It really, literally can be killing us because it's studies show that it's it's dangerous. It's more dangerous than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's more dangerous than obesity, that people who have fewer friends or fewer deep friends actually die 22% sooner. <laughs> so yeah, there are all these things that it, it would behoove us to figure out how did we get in this spot and how do we get out of it. Now, Kim, there's a difference between being lonely and being alone, isn't there? I think particularly that is such a great point, Bill, particularly in this day when we're super connected, like I've got, you know, 700 friends on Facebook and so many followers on Instagram. And, you know, I go to church and I go to work and I know all these people. Um, And yet you're right. We can be um, in the midst of a, a crowd of people and still feel desperately lonely because we're not known and we don't know people in a significant, intimate way. And that really is the factor to how we feel about our relationships. Do people know me? Have I been confidential? Am I transparent? Do I, do I know other people that way? That is kind of how we, you know, if you had, if you had a loneliness gauge, that's how the needle would move. Mm-hmm. You know, Kim, when I think of the, I think people lack attachments like they had in the past, especially growing up. I mean, when you're in high school and college, you've got attachments galore. Maybe you were on a team and you've got teammates. So You've got these deep attachments, and then you go off into the work world, and you sometimes find yourself without those meaningful attachments. I think that is part of it, for sure. Uh, we are thrown together. You know, so, for instance, my son played baseball in college and um, even played for the minors for a short amount of time, and he had this you know, built-in sort of locker room group of guys mm-hmm. that they, you know, they fought together on the competitive field and you know, all that kind of stuff. It was a hard transition to go into the work world where, you know, he is in sales and it's really about his individual performance and, you know, that kind of transition. So that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Um, And I think the the other thing that has really caused us to find ourselves in this position is that everybody's, you know, sort of bashes social media. There are some great things about how it's connected us in sort of the social conscience of the world kind of thing. But it's kind of made us awkward when it comes to real face-to-face interaction. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we just, we're kind of like with people now, we're like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. What do I do? <laughs> We've kind of literally lost the art of knowing how to relate to people when it's not a sound bite. And um, so I think the, the both of those are, are factors that leave us where we are. Mm-hmm. So Kim, if I'm feeling a little bit, if I've got some loneliness, is it important what I'm telling myself about it? So I think there are several levels of 
ways we need to make sure that our little me, myself, and I are informed. Okay. <laughs> one, one, one of the things. So we'll let me let me start with this one, and that is, I think a lot of us because we have sort of been at this place of, you know, not maybe complete loneliness, but feeling somewhat isolated. We kind of come at this place of a truce with our loneliness. Okay, it's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I know enough people. It's okay. I don't really need anybody. I've got my family. I I don't really have time anyway. We sort of talk ourselves into being okay with our state of loneliness. Um, And that can be dangerous, too, because it it means that we now stop trying to find a resolution. So one of the things I think is important is to understand why we should do it, because sometimes self-interest isn't even enough to get us to get past the awkward scary place of how do I begin to build relationships. I think it's important, especially if you're a believer, to know that friends really aren't an optional part of life. They are essential part of life. Um, God himself has created these different environments, different relationships for us to be involved in, that when we as believers do them well, they show the rest of the world something about who he is as God. So, for instance, marriage, right? We all know that scriptures say that marriage is is an illustration, an earthly illustration of a spiritual reality, Christ in the church. And if we do it well, we paint that picture. Fatherhood. God is our father. He is loving and benevolent and kind um, and yet also honest. If we parent well, particularly fathers, we give that picture to the rest of the world of a loving father. When we don't do it well, that has really hard consequences. Friendship is actually in that category. God says he's a friend. He calls himself a friend. And then Jesus actually unpacks that in the Gospels. He says, I'm your friend. I don't call you servant anymore. I tell you transparent, secret things. That's how you know you're my friend. I lay down my life for you. That's how you know I'm your friend. And um, and I chose you first before you chose me. That's how I know you're friend. And then he specifically says, now go and do this to other people. And so when we friend well, and it is a spiritual calling, a command of Christ to go do like this to other people, we actually show the rest of the world the kind of friendship God has. So it's far more consequential, I think, than we realize. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, Kim, that there's people, if they're in a period of loneliness, might have this horrible thought planted in their head, probably by the enemy, that, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Oh, I'm the queen of bad self-talk. <laughs> <laughs> you all know, right. we all have that voice in our head, right? Confess, queen. You know, the one that says, Nobody wants to be my friend. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going out and eat worms. And, you know, there, there are voices from our childhood or bad experience. There are mother who was overly critical. Whatever that tape that plays in our head is, we now play it ourselves and talk ourselves out of thinking that anybody would want to be friends with us. Men do it. Women do it. Certainly kids and teenagers do it. And the only way to stop that voice, honestly, is to replace it with something that's true. What does God say about you? You know, what does he think about you? Where is your value in him? And let those words replace that broken tape that's going over and over again in your head. If you don't friend yourself, you're never going to be able to friend somebody else in a, else in a healthy way. It's, and we all know that. It's become self-destructive. If we don't love ourselves the way he, he – Proverbs says that we are to be a lover of our own souls. And God says that we are to think his thoughts about us. If we don't, then we're constantly going to be looking for somebody else to fill that gap, to make us feel worthy, to give us the approval we're craving. And so we'll, we'll wind up self-destructing in relationships. So I just think, be, friend yourself. You're awesome. You're fabulous. You're God's gift to other people. You need to know it.
it, and God's Word will help you see it. You're embarrassing me. Continue. <laughs> it's so true, Bill. It's so true. <laughs> all right. I know that all of the friendship principles apply both for men and women in your book. I know you kind of lean a little bit towards uh, women in the book. Would you uh, share, Kim, some of the, the, mo- the more common lies or misconceptions that women believe about friendship? Yeah, so I think I'll start with the the big one, um, and that is that one BFF is going to satisfy our soul. I think ever since we were little girls, and I do think this is more a girl thing than a guy thing. Maybe you can tell me this or not, Bill. Right. Um, you know, we all want a best friend forever. You know, the person that you could you could share the friendship necklace with. They get the other half of the heart, <laughs> and we, we wanted that as a little girl. We aimed for it. We strive for it. And then we get to be this grown-up girl, and we still want it. We still feel like if I just had a best friend, everything would be okay. Like, they're never going to let us down. They're always going to be there for us. And then what happens is we find somebody that we can put in that hole, you know, and and then they they do disappoint us because they're human, or we disappoint them, or they're not always there for us, or they move, or, you know, fill in the blank. And so this thing that we chase, this unicorn of a friend— that we spent our whole childhood and adult chasing actually turns out to be a myth. And then we're incredibly disappointed and hurt. And then we withdraw and think, well, I'm not going to do that again. That didn't end well. I think that may be one of the biggest things. Um, I think another one is thinking that all friendships are created equal, that, that if a friendship isn't measuring up to something else I've had, then it's probably not very worthy. And the truth is we should have different kinds of friendships in our lives. We should have friends that we're giving more to than they're giving to us, kind of mentoring, somebody you're further along with. You should have the opposite, somebody who's giving more to you that's encouraging you along. And then you ought to have some of those balanced friendships. But everyone's going to be unique. And trying to make them all look alike, again, is just a recipe for self-destructing. I think those are a couple of the big ones. Yeah. So, Kim, I would love to hear what you would consider kind of a definition of a really good friend, because I think I have one as well. Maybe we can swap our definitions. Well, um, so I'll go, how about I go is, first? Is, yeah, you go first, because then I'll tell you what I've done wrong. Okay. <laughs> start. See, to me, a really good friend is somebody that takes your calls all the time, or they let you know they will get back to you instantly, and they do. That 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 feels like a friend that's almost on a walkie-talkie with you in life. I yeah, mean, the, the, the walkie is always on, and there's always a little bit of static, but when they call, when you call, they always answer. Uh, you never get voicemail unless it's, you know, some real reason, or they send you a text message saying, uh, I'll be done with this in five minutes, and I'll call you right back, and they do. Yeah, I think that that sense of availability for everybody is so great, important. Great word. Because it, it says... It says you're important to me. I value you. Um, you know, when Jesus was explaining in John how he describes himself as a friend and one of those three elements in his description of friendship was somebody who lays down his life for his friend. That word can actually mean forfeit your life. And we did see Jesus do that for his friends ultimately. But that word actually can be translated lays aside their life for their friend. Few of us are going to be called to actually die for our friends. But we can die to self. We can say, oh, my friend needs me. I'm going to set aside my life, my priorities, you know, my agenda to be there for them. And I think that's why it is so compelling, because Jesus says it's one of the three things that is uh, definitive of of who a friend is. So there you go. I think you're right on track. Now, good. I am talking to Kim Weir. She's written a book called The Art of Friendship, Creating and Keeping Relationships That Matter. Big subject. We're taking a little break. We'll be right back. 
back to the show. So glad to have Kim Weir as my guest on the line. She has written a book called The Art of Friendship, and that should get everyone's attention because we all love friends. We measure our life often by the richness of our relationships with friends. And maybe this is a good reminder that you should take inventory of some of the friends you haven't contacted in a while uh, and give them a call or let them know that you care about them and love them. So, Kim, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, friendships in the Bible. Is there some a great illustration, something from God's Word that we can go back to and reread? There are actually so many that I think we constantly overlook because as as scripture can do there's so many layers it's like an onion right there's so many layers when you start peeling back both stories and passages and realize they are meaningful on several different levels and so i think we look at some stories and we take a lesson away from them but then we miss that they actually are instructive about friendship as well so there's a plethora of them and i loved getting to list them out um in the resource that i put together but i think one of the ones that for me is such a picture of the kind of of friend love that Jesus was describing is the story of Jonathan and David. And so there you go. There's, there's a man, there's a great mm-hmm. man friendship, but it's instructive for all of us. And the hero of that friendship is actually not David. It's actually Jonathan. He is this really awesome guy who does exactly what Jesus does. He, he chooses first, he lays aside his life for his friend, and ultimately he dies in the line of friendship. Um, so you've got you know, Jonathan, who is the heir to the kingdom, right? He's a war hero. He's an honorable man. He'd make a great king. His daddy, Saul, is king, uh, the first king of Israel. And oh, lo and behold, along comes this younger guy, uh, David, who, who steps up for God's honor, wins this great battle against a, a, an obnoxious guy called Goliath, and wins the hearts of the people, but he also wins Jonathan's heart. And Jonathan immediately is drawn toward David. I think he sees a lot of the things that he himself embodies in David. And, and it says they, they actually make a covenant, that, that they love each other as friends, and they say, we will swear to each other to always be there for each other. This was so troubling to his dad, the king, that he actually goes to Jonathan at one point and says, listen to me, son, you are never going to be king if David lives. People love him. We have to get rid of him. Hmm. And Jonathan's response to that, who is rightfully due to be the king, decides it is better to be David's friend than to be king. And he lays aside that right in order to affirm and build up and help David reach the destiny that God has for them. It's a great story. It's, um, you should read it in the book of, of Samuel. It's just a powerful story of friendship. And, and then David even responds, even after Jonathan dies on the battlefield. Um, David responds with continued loyalty to his friend Jonathan by bringing his son into the kingdom and caring for him when he could have easily by rights had him killed. So it's just, there's so many lessons, but when you think about, uh, friend lessons, okay, Bill, would you ever think of Judas and Jesus as being a great friend model? Um, Judas the betrayer. Well, you know what? I think I would. Tell me what you would learn from them. Um, that they are going to... Uh, love each other even if they don't see eye to eye on stuff. Isn't that awesome? Here you get Jesus treating Judas with respect and love, even when there has to be a line where he says, look, you need to go do what you're going to do. Right. Um, he still washes his feet. Yeah. He gives him the opportunity to hear truth. He shows him respect. You know, there are a lot of times where we need to separate from somebody for any number of reasons. And to do it well, to do it with honor and respect— 
wow, there's some lessons in that for us. Oh, Kim, that's such a smart point. I, I've never really thought of that the way you've coined it in terms of it being a friendship. But that's a beautiful thought mm. with Jesus and Jesus, Judas. Yeah. He, he, there's so many things to learn from each one of his friendships. And, um, again, that's why I said until I, I, the reason I dived into this in the first place, Bill, is because I was a friend failure. I mean, literally I looked up one day and realized, I don't think I have any friends. I've, I've gotten busy. I pulled away. I got invested in my own life. I, you know, had teenagers and middle schoolers and everything became about, you know, getting their lives in order. And of course that didn't work out very well, right? <laughs> you can't, you can't always fix your kids. Um, and uh, one day I realized I I don't have friends anymore. And what what does it look like? Where did I go wrong? And what should I do now? Because my inner voice is telling me, you blew it too late. This is your life. Um, and so digging into Scripture and seeing God's call to something better and greater, man, it has been revolutionized the way I see my own yeah. relationship. So, Kim, I know this has come up before, and it's very sad when I hear this, but when people take an, an initiative— to reach out, to try to build a friendship, and it just flat out doesn't work, and they feel rejected. And they go, I did my part. I got out of my comfort zone. I took the risk. I invited someone to lunch or coffee and then tried again, and it just didn't work. Yeah, I I think that whole um, feeling of rejection, it is one of the most powerful emotions that we can feel uh, is rejection. And I think it can be the thing that makes us you know, curl inside of ourselves more than any other. But again, if we're if you want to have and display and pursue the kind of friendship that God has modeled as the best kind of friendship, then the go first mentality is at the center of it. You know, what was it that Jesus said in that? I chose you, you didn't choose me. That's go first. Go first. Mm-hmm. I think part of it, too, and, and, and I don't know about this for guys, but certainly for, for girls, sometimes we'll look at a group and we'll think, oh, I really want to be part of that group. Those are the people I want to be in. Why can't I be in their circle? We get fixated on it. And unfortunately, there are some people that, are, that get um, stuck in this thing of, well, my friend boat is full. I can't pursue anybody else. I can't let you in because I wouldn't be a good friend to you and I wouldn't be able to pursue anymore. <laughs> so it's sort of like the boat is full. Right. So for whatever reason, it's hard for you to get in there. So I would say more, this is our problem than their problem. You know, how many people out there are wanting somebody to reach out to them? So as opposed to getting fixated on the group that you want in that you can't figure out how to, why not look and say, Jesus went first and chose me when I wasn't even thinking about choosing him. Who needs me? To choose them. Who can I invite to coffee? Who, what couple can we have over for dinner? Uh, Who could I ask questions uh, to that maybe their answers could help me find out more about them? Um, So number one, it's about who are you targeting? Okay, is it about you or is it about them? And then number two, are you willing to go first and keep going first? That is the key to friending. Go first. Get out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's just admit it does hurt when you feel a little rejected. And you're trying to do something as innocent as possible, which is just strike up a friendship. Yes, it, it does hurt. And part of, part of, I think, moving past that is doing that little bit of paradigm shift in your mind, which is as opposed to, oh, my gosh, I missed out. They don't want me, is realizing the reality. No, yes, you did. But guess what? They missed out. You had a handout offering them the gift of yourself as a blessing to them. And for whatever reason they missed, but you know, part of 
learning to friend people is not counting wrongs against you. I think that's the one thing I want to make sure I point people to in our conversation, Bill, is this whole idea, well, I don't know how. How would I friend? So, yes, go first. Yes, be transparent. Um, and, and, yes, be willing to, to let other people be the priority. But when Jesus said that we're to love people as he loved, he used the word agape. He didn't say, I agape divinely love you. Now you go phileo, friend love, or eros, romantic mm-hmm. love. Or, he, didn't, he used the same word, agape. The way I love you, go love them. And if you skip over to 1 Corinthians 13, is the love chapter. It's the agape chapter. It's not the romantic chapter. It's the chapter on how to love as a friend, how to love as God loves. And if you want to know how to love people, how to be a friend, go through that chapter. Are you being patient? Are you being kind? Do you envy people? Do you boast? Uh, are you proud? Is there any way you're dishonoring? Is there any way you get easily angered? Are you protecting that person? Are you trusting that person? Measure your relationships against that. Or if you're starting a new relationship, let that be a guide of how you can move forward with people. I'm telling you, transformative. Yeah, that's really powerful. So, Kim, when your friends have hurt you, how have you bounced back from that? Well, I do tell a story in the book of a place I didn't bounce back. I'm not proud of it, but it doesn't help for me to pretend I've got it all together. And so there are lots of stories of me not having it together. (laughs) But in that one instance, I was so hurt by this fabulous, wonderful person because I felt like she was choosing other people over me. And instead of doing the thing I should have done, which is, how do I share? How do I let other people know how great she is instead of being envious? I basically just said to her, you know what? I don't think this is going to work out. You're too busy. And I just think we need to go our separate ways, which was ridiculous and immature. I mean, to my credit, maybe it was 15 years ago. So I mean, I learned a lot since then, but um, I didn't do it well. Since then, I'll tell you just right after the book came out, I got two texts, one from a friend who wanted to share with me all of the ways that my relationship with her had been a blessing. I felt so great, patting myself on the back, Bill. (laughs) Next day, I get a text from somebody that says, hey, I just feel like I should let you know that I've been harboring bitterness against you for years for something that you did. And I've just come to realize it's not fair for me to be bitter and not even tell you about it. And I had a choice at that moment. What was I going to do? Because it's not just about who hurts us, but let's be honest. It's about who we hurt sometimes. Um, And so in that moment, I had a choice to get defensive or hurt or hide or deny. And what I had to do was trust, trust that if I said to her, please tell me what I did and then own it and then ask for forgiveness, that something good would come out of that. And it did. Um, now that thing that, that I didn't even know was between us for years, every time we saw each other, it's gone and we can move forward. So it is, it is hard to hurt something, to be hurt, but we got to remember too, that we also hurt. And the same grace we want given to us, if we will act on giving that same grace, then I think that'll help us move through it. And Kim, one of the scariest hurts is when you hurt someone and you're completely unaware of the fact that you've hurt them and they're walking around feeling hurt and wounded by you and you're clueless. Clueless. But I do think that's why communication and friendship is so important. You know, asking questions. We have this tendency to want to be known as our primary objective as opposed to know other people. Um, And so that's one of the things I walk through. What are questions that you could actually ask? How do you keep relationships healthy? If it is all about just me, 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 
and then you're satisfied with that because they're giving you what you need, you'll never know that you hurt them because you haven't slowed down enough to know what they're processing, what's going on in their life, what their needs are. And so um, you know, part of this whole idea of friendship is really about becoming mature, a mature person who gives in to your friends in a mature way. And, and friends aren't just the people that you know we go to the mall with or hang out with. In every relationship, there's an element of friendship. In your marriage, don't you want to be a friend to your spouse? To your adult kids, don't you want to friend them as they get older? Don't you want to have a friendship with your adult parents? So there are so many ways that this stuff applies. It's not just about your girlfriend or the guy you go golfing with. Mm -hmm. So smart, Kim. You know, a couple of things I'm going to walk away with instantly was your transparency with friends. Ask what it is and then own whatever it is that you are at fault with. Uh, that's that's just a very simple one step that I can gonna just lodge in my brain going forward. Thank you for that. You know, I think being a friend is not a once and done thing. Oh, good, I've made friends. I'm done. <laughs> it literally is an everyday lifestyle thing. That that it's like a, I'm horrible with plants, and the reason is because I don't want to water them. I don't want to put them in the sun. I don't mm -hmm. want to. Once I buy the plant, I don't want to do anything with it. And you know, the, you can guess what the end result of that is. I think sometimes our friendships are like that. We have them. But gosh, they need care and tending. They do indeed. Kim, thank you so much for doing the show. I have loved uh, this time together with you. Kim Weir has been my guest, The Art of Friendship, Creating and Keeping Relationships That Matter. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.